gotta get some experience first. Mm. There are so few and far between of the Mark Zuckerbergs or the Bill Gates that drop out and create something amazing. Mm. It really is somebody who has, like most people, they've gone and got, whether it's experience working at a startup or experience working at a big, you know, corporate entity, those, that, that experience is invaluable. It also starts to build up your network, which then also translates into those soft skills that you need to be able to run a business. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I am your host, Devin Miller, serial entrepreneur that's grown several startups into seven and eight figure businesses, as well as the founder and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses with their patents and trademarks. If you ever need help with yours, just go to strategymeeting.com and we're always here to help. Now, today we have another great guest on the podcast, Zachary Rosga and I and I was making sure that I pronounced it right. And I'm still 50-50 that I'm going to mess up, and I and I but so I apologize in advance. But uh, Zachary has been a, a bit of a, a lifelong entrepreneur, always been around small businesses. Um, you know, as a background, his father was a bit more of a corporate guy. His mom was a bit more of a small businesswoman, and he tended to apparently follow in his mom's footsteps or footsteps a bit more. Um, but spent a lot of time growing up around his mom's jobs. Um, as she was doing more small businesses, went off to college, got a finance degree, um, did a couple jobs, went to, and then decided to move to San Diego and be a beach bum for a period of time. Also got involved with some startups with television shows. May not have been quite as successful, but they were a great, uh, great experience. Went back to grad school, did some untamed internships in, I think, Cape Town, and then uh, went to did some tech, uh, did some er or worked for some early founders of uh, tech industries, I think, in Australia and Hong Kong or something of that nature. And then uh, running a consultancy period or consultancy to a 2008 financial crash, made some adjustments, came back to the States and uh now fast forwarding to where he's at today and he'll share a little bit more about that or as we go on his journey so with that much as of an introduction welcome on the pack or podcast Zachary well thanks for having me uh it's a pleasure to be here and uh that was a uh a fast forward uh introduction for a fairly lengthy journey um I'm not uh a young buck anymore I uh you know have a few gray beards on my chin and actually no hair on my head so well, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting there. I've got started to get gray in my beard, and I've started to lose hair on my head. So I've, I've got a bit to catch up with you, but I'm, I'm on that same track as, as you are. So maybe with that, take us back a little bit in time. I did the brief overview, but take us back, being a little bit of a, a lifelong entrepreneur and, and following or kind of seeing what your mom did, and following a bit in those footsteps, and walk us through your journey. Yeah, I appreciate it. So you know, it's, it's interesting to be on this podcast and have somebody actually ask about the journey because. I think a lot of times when you get into these types of business conversations and podcasts, everybody wants to knock, talk about the now, the present mm -hmm. and the present in the future, right? Like, what, what are you doing now? And what are you going to do in five years time? And, and I, it's, it's often that you don't get a chance to reflect on like, how did you get here? And what have you done that's going to, you know, help you get to where you want to be in the future? So, you know, mm -hmm. it's funny, like you said, I, I, I have tended to be on the sort of small business side with a father who was definitely at the big business side. I think at the time he left Wells Fargo, they were almost as big as like the federal government um, you know, <laughs> employees. And probably have more power, so. Yeah, it was right after the merger with Wachovia, <laughs> which, you know, they truly became a gigantic sort of, I would say almost unwieldy machine. But, um, mm. 
you know, and actually we saw that because they got in a lot of trouble shortly thereafter. Um, but sidebar there. Uh, yeah. I mean, my mom was mostly in the sort of small business realm and part of it was because of where we were as a family and following my dad around, you know, as he was getting moved from here to there with the corporate machine. And so mm. she ended up having it, you know, still keeping a career, which I really appreciate and applaud with her. And a lot of times it was in smaller businesses. And, you know, I, I took, you know, little jobs here and there with her at her businesses. And it, mm. it's, you know, the one thing about working in small businesses, you do get exposure to a lot. Mm. Um, and when you're in large corporations, you become a very narrow focused specialist. Whereas when you're in small businesses, you have to do accounting, you have to do hiring, you have to do, you know, uh, sales, marketing, etc. And so I think that's one of the things that I, I was lucky at a very young age is to get exposed to every sort of facet of a business, which I think is really important when you're going to become a leader mm. now my ambition is to actually grow my current business to something that is sizable or at least gets you know to a point mm. where it could maybe be acquired by a sizable business so i don't it's not that i shy away from that because you know the bigger you are the more money and resources are around um, absolutely but uh yeah i i definitely think that 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 experience that i had as sort of a high school student has kind of carried through me with my career um and yeah i mean you know after I finished college, you know, I had the unfortunate uh, time of graduating similar to graduates right now where we weren't financially in the best place as a country. Um, and actually I graduated August, 2001. And then we all kind of know what happened in September of 2001. Mm. Um, and um, I actually did go to San Diego originally with a corporate job mm. um, and uh, ended up sort of leaving it fairly shortly thereafter, uh, partially, I think, because of 9-11. And then also because I kind of was not into it. I just didn't didn't feel right. And so ended up grabbing a little bit of side work with an adventure travel company that was selling trips. Um, you know, primarily their focus was Oceania, Africa, so long haul destinations. But with 9-11, they needed to focus on near shores, you know, opportunities and, you know, trips and experiences, which then brought us down into central Mexico. Um, so one question, just, just because I think in your own self-described words, when we talked a bit before you said you were a beach bum. So was that the case is, you know, what does beach bum mean to you? Does it mean you just hang out at the beach? Did you actually sleep on the beach? Did you just no. happen to play? I just it, was curious because I always, I always only think I you know, know for beach bums is what I see on TV. No, I, I say it's because uh, I'm, you know, when, when you're at the tail end of your college career, you know, particularly that sort of last six months, maybe even the last year of your senior year of, of, of university, particularly if you're in the business school, you're spending mm -hmm. most of that time interviewing for jobs, right? Mm -hmm. And so I went on that same path and, you know, this was pre-Google days. This was like, you know, again, it's 2001. So there was a lot of dot-com stuff happening mm -hmm. and there was a lot of dot-com companies sitting with booths at my school. Plus there was, you know, sort of the traditional finance businesses, et cetera. And I went through a lot of those interview processes and I was like, I, you know, I kind of don't, really care so much about the career it kind of just like i'll take the job that takes me to where i want to be and it, so mm. i i picked the location versus the job mm. so and actually the job that i went with was probably not the best career fit for me but it was in san diego and i just i just wanted i grew up in colorado i went to university of colorado and i just wanted to get out of colorado i think is really what it was and mm. the two jobs that i had that were sort of 
and this is actually something that's happened to me sort of out throughout my career is I have a couple of different options and I end up taking what would be financially the least desirable option because it has something <laughs> beneficial mm. to my life versus just a financial outcome. Mm. Um, so this happened to me again after my grad school. Um, and so, yeah, I took the job in San Diego, not because it was a great job, but because it was not in Colorado and the other two were in Colorado <laughs> and this objective to get out of Colorado. Um, so that was, that, that, that was what led me to San Diego. Um, you know, so I you got into San Diego and you, and you, you know, kind of a self-described beach bum, but you did have some jobs you were working, working with the, the travel company. But is, if I remember right, that's kind of what led to doing more of the kind of the startup with the t- television shows. Is that right? Yeah. So when we were working in central Mexico, trying to put together some tourism packages, we were basically being sponsored um, and, and not in a like big dollar sponsorship way, but basically had our trip paid for by the state government of Chihuahua. Mm. And they brought us down there to essentially do some scouting and a guy that we were connected to. And to be honest with you, I don't remember how we got connected to him. He mm. was in the television business and it was at this inflection point with Mark Burnett, where he was leaving what he did pre-survivor, which a lot of people don't probably know that he had a pre-survivor life. <laughs> um, so he had a, he had a television show called the eco challenge, which was more of an adventure race that they filmed versus a television show that they made seem like an adventure. Um, yeah, and they actually, as a complete aside, so they had the eco challenge. They actually brought it back recently onto Amazon Prime, and me and my wife actually watched it. So it was an interesting show. So I should probably go aside. watch it and see if the people who I knew are in the like trailers at the <laughs> end. Like, you know, they're part of the production company. So there was a group of people that were eco challenge aficionados and were with that business who mm. didn't want it to go away. And Mark Burnett was ready to move on and just focus exclusively on, you know, his, his new thing, which was called survivor. Mm. Um, and so the business model that they had developed with eco challenge, actually he took with him over to survivor, which is find a destination, have that destination pay the upfront sort of production costs. Mm. You know, so the last eco challenge was in Fiji and the Fijian government cut him a million dollar check. Mm. Um, and so we were trying to take that model and we had an existing relationship with central Mexico, in particular, the Taramara region, which is throughout Copper Canyon. Um, and that's what sort of got us down there. And that's what got me into, you know, really my first startup, uh, where we had to go through put pitch decks together. Now, these weren't like pitch decks, like a startup pitch deck, these were treatments. So, you know, part of it was a deck, but then also we created some, like splicing together all kinds of old footage. And I, I grabbed a buddy of mine from university, um, who, majored in this and we i mean i remember spending days in his house up in los angeles essentially stealing old footage and putting it together and putting (laughs) new music over top of it Mm. um and taking it out and you know we we probably would have made it happen except we had two problems one we didn't really know what we were doing as a team um and we had a problem with intent to air rights so we got some intent to air rights but they were not in the united states Mm. That was issue number one, which meant we couldn't really go and approach American U.S. brands to Hmm. we had or we couldn't go to the brand partner or, you know, brand agency in the U.S. We had to go to where we had intent to air rights, which Hmm. was in Latin America, Hmm. which was a whole different thing we didn't realize. And then the other thing, too, is we really didn't equate or put into our budget how much insurance was going to cost. And it as a first time production company 
we tried to essentially get it insured by everyone and the cheapest that we could get broke the budget. And so that's what ended up, I think, ultimately killing the, the entire project was we, we had a mismatch. And I think this happens to a lot of small businesses where we had commitments and we had you know, in a lot of startups. We had commitments, we had money coming in, we had ideas, we had the right people, but we didn't have the exact right match of people and the exact right revenue or financial setup to make it happen. Mm. Um, and we were involving really high level production costs so you know maybe we could have run it on a shoestring but the problem was what the market expected from the eco challenge was a pretty high level production um the last one that they had done in fiji was a really really good production value and Mm. so we to take a step back we i don't we just couldn't do it so so now as you look and say okay number of challenges can't do the television show kind of you know wrapping that up good experience fun or fun travel get to do a lot of cool things you know where did i think that you you mentioned from there you went to grad school and then did an unpaid internship in cape town is that right yeah so that experience of working overseas really gave me the overseas bug and i really enjoyed working with the the local culture and the indigenous population and also mm. working with the people from Chihuahua. So, you know, that I think that's kind of what was fun about it is this thing that was a television show. And I also kind of realized, I think by going through this part, I did not want to be in the television business. Like that was, you know, on paper and like as a 21 year old, it's like super glamorous and awesome, especially if you're in Southern California. But in reality, it just, it, you know, the pecking order and the, 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 the hoops you had to jump through to become, you know, a part of that industry at a really sort of substantial level was not exactly what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. but I really enjoyed the time that I had in the field overseas working with the local culture. And so I decided that's what I wanted to do as a career. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I really, really enjoyed the experiential side of it, like showing people something different than what they would see in their day to day. Um, and so I went and got a master's degree at George Washington University for experiential development, hmm. sustainable development. I, you know, it was partially in the business school, partially in their foreign services school. Um, and, uh, you know, at that time I had across the street from me was the World Bank um, and also National Geographic and USAID and all the government agencies that were there. Um, but I also was lucky to be working for the university. So I had, you know, not just opportunities to go and be in those places, but actually working relationships. And Mm. so I took it upon myself to help a nonprofit in South Africa that I really liked because essentially what they were doing was what I was doing in central Mexico, but bringing these communities online. Um, Mm. So it was really teaching community managers or community tourism assets, how to become a part of the internet. And I really liked that. And I was like, that's the future. And so I helped them to win a really large grant from the World Bank. And they asked me to come over and essentially work with them on it. And then when they asked me like how much I wanted to get paid after I'd been there for two months and I told them, they're like, you're crazy, go away. We, this, is, this is not really in the budget. And frankly, we can do what you do from here in South Africa now that we have the money. Um, mm. So thank you very much. See you later. <laughs> um, but on the way out, I... I kind of thought this could have been a possibility. So I, as everyone does, you know, I registered an LLC on the way out the, out the mm. door on my way to Cape Town. 
um, and ended up being able to leverage those relationships that I built to start my consulting practice. And so this was sort of my first company that I was in charge of. Um, I was lucky that my you know, co-founder was my girlfriend, um, who actually now is my wife. Um, and so we sort of co-preneured this business together. Mm. And, you know, we had some, you know, public sector clients as our sort of get out of uh, out the gates clients. But then our first real big customer was a private sector company that also was a, it was a startup. Um, and they basically brought us on as a part of the early stage founding team, which is what gave me my exposure to the startup world. Um, mm. and so it was really fun because, you know, we ran, you know, my wife actually did more work for the startup than for our consulting company. Mm. I, I did more work for the consulting company than the startup. Mm. Um, but we kind of blended them together and it was a magical, really crazy <laughs> time. I mean, we ended up getting married during the time, but at the same time, collectively, I think we traveled to something like 70 countries. Mm. Um, we worked in probably like we worked with people in over a hundred countries um, because it was in the travel and tourism business and it was essentially packaging and selling experiences to the market. Um, and so I, I, I think from that side, I, from that business, I really, I learned the marketplace business. Like if you're going to be in a marketplace and you're going to create a marketplace, you have to be able to pay attention both to the supply and the demand. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, the biggest understanding of that or the biggest use case we see is like Amazon. Amazon can, says that they're the, you know, the most customer centric company on the planet. Well, you know, what people don't recognize is they think of their customers as both sides, supply and demand. Mm. Um, now we've all heard some of the horror stories from the supply side. Clearly they do everything really well for the demand side. So, you know, they're always, they're, you know, they're really great at selling product, but they really have built their systems for both sides. Like, there is a real need from the suppliers to be on the platform. And there's a real, you know, value add from the customers to be able to get access to the platform. Mm. And so that kind of lands me where I am today is, you know, I I'm in the, I'm building a, you know, a, essentially a next generation um, ad network that is focused on, you know, experiences and content creators. So, I mean, it, it really is, it's, it's in a different domain, but it's, it's actually sort of a long-term extension of what I've been doing. So now one kind of question, just going back just for a second. So because yeah. one thing you mentioned when we chatted before is that there was kind of that overlay for a period of time with 2018 and the financial crisis and things coming a bit to yeah, an end. Or, or what, sorry, what did I say? Anyway, 2008. Yeah, yeah. Um, 2008. And then, you know, the financial crisis obviously went, er, went on beyond that. So was that... So the businesses that your consultancy and everything remind me was that before or after the crash or did you have to adjust or shut those down? No, I mean basically. No, I mean I th that's a really good point. I mean the, the 2008 financial crisis shut us down. Mm. Uh, they they there were there were a couple of really big projects that we went out and won on the consulting side that we leveraged the private sector company to win by saying that the, because the private sector company was going through a capital raise mm. and we were going to take a chunk of that capital invested into new regions. So essentially our company was heavily leveraged in um, Southeast Asia, the, the, I would say Eastern Europe, I would call it and Africa and Oceania. Mm. And the, the area of the world that we hadn't started working in was the, the Western hemisphere. And so, on the private side, we were actually in a capital raise 
in starting in 2007, where we were raising money to expand what we were doing in a significant way, both from a product improvement perspective, but also a geographic like domain exchange. Mm. Um, and so we then went and raised some money on the non on sort of the consulting side through government donors with mm. a explicit one-to-one match. And we were going to take the capital, the, 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 the private capital dollars we were raising in the, you know, the private equity markets and match the government money with it. And they were okay with it. Actually, the, the thing mm. that was really interesting was the, the public sector people wanted to write case studies around the world that we were doing this mm. because it could show a true public private partnership. Like it was, everybody was like over the moon that we could do this together. Mm. And then, you know, the, the, the first inklings of we had a problem financially in the global market, our first lead investor kind of backed off. Uh, they were out of Hong Kong. Um, and then our next investor kind of backed off. They were out of India. And then all of a sudden, then boom, the financial crisis happened and the stock markets plummeted. And literally every investor that we were talking to is like, we're not going to invest money in tourism in emerging economies. Mm. Like it was just a not happening. And so, you know, we went back to our public partners and asked Mm. them like, you know, what can we do? And they, to their credit, they bent over backwards trying to find us another investment partner, particularly in the region that we were working with. And we just couldn't do it. Mm. Um, It was just, it was just the wrong timing, too risky. And so, you know, we had put so much capital of our own as a consulting company into that project that we basically had for you know dried up our pipeline and we basically had no pipeline left because Mm. we put so much energy and effort into that we had a couple of other projects that were running but they were like at the tail end of them because this was going to be our big like three-year project and it was going to consume everything and actually my wife and i had already planned to move from africa back to the the americas to be able to manage it Mm. um and so this all kind of happened you know simultaneously you know it's at the end of the day like we ended up having to close the company um the consulting company the private company had to completely reorganize it it went through several different iterations after that and to a point where i think it eventually sold all of its assets off to some of our strategic partners and Mm. you know so now and so now now going now bringing us full circle bringing us to today you have yeah. the company you're working on um give us you know a little bit of kind of where are you at and kind of where do you th- see things headed yeah so 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 where we are today is uh you know like i said i've I, after that that sort of happened i went through a series of you know oh my god what do i do kind of moments and just mm. kept the lights burning both personally and professionally and ended up making my way into experiential marketing, um, which was actually a natural, you know, uh, I would say progression of my, my expertise in my professional career, because that's essentially what we were doing was helping experiences get marketed and sold. You know, Mm. these were tourism experiences. And so now working with brands and their brand partners to, you know, get in front of consumers and excite them and create experiences was a natural sort of progression. Mm. Um, And so, you know, started doing that, uh, ended up building a piece of technology that was our own, because one of the things I noticed in experiential activations for brands is that there was not a lot of data being captured. 
Mm. It was, we'll hire a street team and let them run down the road. And hopefully that'll turn into new memberships at our gym. Or, you know, we're going to spend a bunch of money on a, you know, a billboard inside of this concert, or we're going to slap our name up against this sports team. And it's going to, you know, there wasn't a lot of, you know, data-driven decisions and conversions of customers. So we we built a platform to address that. Mm. And again, like 2008, um, who would have foresaw a global pandemic that was going to shut the economy down and shut down essentially all experiential activations as we knew them was going to come at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. And that's exactly what happened to us. Mm. Um, we had a really significant book of business built up in the Q1 of 2020 mm. that literally within a week went from like a quarter million dollars of booked, sold business to five grand. Mm. Um, and honestly, at that point, I had a little bit of like a, oh shit moment. Like, this is going to happen to me again, like things outside of my control. Mm. Um, but the difference between that time and this time is I didn't take in outside investment. Um, mm. We didn't bring in additional third-party capital in any sort of super substantial way. Yes, we did raise a little bit of friends and family to build the product, but we hadn't closed that seed round or we hadn't, and, and, and you know, we were preparing for it actually based on the book of business that we had but we didn't actually go out to market and start, you know, selling it. And I think that's actually what in in a weird way actually helped us is because we didn't have like all these third party issues of like, Hey, we need to realize this or no, you can't like innovate in there and you can't do that. And you can't. And it allowed us to take a deep, deep breath and take a step back, um, mm. which is what we did. And look, you know, lo and behold, we found amazing opportunity where we could actually apply a marketplace concept to it, which is an esports and gaming. So basically what we're doing is we're helping brands and in particular non-endemic brands access the esports and gaming market, which is a gigantic growth area in terms of media diet for people, you know, where they spend their time. Um, and, you know, we're at the very beginning of that journey. Um, we, we came up with the concept, how it would work, did all the testing sort of Q end of Q3 beginning of Q4 of last year and sort of in 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 took it to market I would say in November of mm-hmm. 2020 and are now in that moment where we're just fielding RFPs and putting together um you know proposals and starting to sell that inventory. Well awesome. That's a, it sounds like it was a, a good pivot and it certainly allowed you, you know, by not taking on that outside investors allowed to react quickly, adjust and be able to keep the business alive and, and thriving and moving forward. Well, as we start to wrap up, I always ask, you know, two questions at the end of the podcast. So we'll, die, or we'll jump to those now. So, and, and, and it's a good transition point. Um, along your journey, what was the worst business decision you ever made and what did you learn from it? The long, the worst business decision um, that I made was I, the initial co-founders, that I had of this business, mm. th- which I've actually replaced them. Um, they were wonderful, amazing people, but they didn't have the right skill set, expertise, and experience that was necessary to turbocharge the business. Mm. And that was exactly the problem that I have had in another business <laughs> in the past. Mm. And I didn't learn my lesson. And, mm. and I'm, and I'm what the, the one I'm referring to in the past was the television show, right? Mm. 
we had the greatest idea, the most well-intentioned people, people willing to scrape, scrap, work as hard as they possibly could, but they just didn't have the fundamental skill set to be able to do what was necessary to move the needle. Hmm. Same thing when I originally created this company. Um, but because I was the majority shareholder of it and because I ha have a situation where I, I had some flexibility, instead of saying, screw it and giving up, I actually found a way, A, to make them whole because they did contribute a ton of time, energy, and effort into getting it off the ground. Mm. And B, replace them with somebody that does have the skill set, does have the network, and does have the expertise to be able to make it happen. Mm. Um, but, you know, I did have three years of just terrifying, horrible heartache and pain working with these people and asking them to do things they just fundamentally couldn't do. Hmm. No, I mean, that makes perfect sense. So now, and I, and I think that's a good lesson to learn in the sense, you know, and it's one that sounded like you had to learn the hard way a second time, but then you finally learned the lesson of, hey, you really do have to not only have people that are skilled or good workers, but actually fit what the company is able to turbocharge or really have that, you know, that drive and, and, and culture fit and skill set, all of the above in order to really drive the company. I think that that's one that too often you're trying to think, hey, I can, they're good people, they're good workers, they're my friends, I know them, and it's hard to make that pivot, and yet sometimes it can hold the company back when you don't do that. Now, as we jump to the second question, which is if you're talking to someone that's just getting into a startup or a small business, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Yeah, you know, so I actually, I got this question a couple, I think it was last week, where because I, I was student teaching um, a bunch of CS students, um, you know, they were probably in their second year of computer science. And mm. there was a lot of them that were like super enamored with the idea of starting a business. Mm. And I said, don't do it. I said, you guys need to make this. If your ambition in your life is to start a business, great. I think that's the greatest thing you should ever do. But one thing that I, I think is really important is you got to get some experience first. Mm. There are so few and far between of the Mark Zuckerbergs or the Bill Gates that drop out and create something amazing. Mm. It really is somebody who has, like most people, they've gone and got, whether it's experience working at a startup or experience working at a big, you know, corporate entity, those, that, that experience is invaluable. It also starts to build up your network, which then also translates into those soft skills that you need to be able to run a business. Mm. And so that would be my recommendation. I know there's probably not a lot of people per, you know, maybe that are in the same situation that I'm describing that listen to your podcast. But I mean, I think it's really important to have like real experience, not just an idea because mm. it's, it, it's, it, ideas are a dime a dozen. It's the execution that actually makes the business happen. And, mm. and so that, that would be my recommendation. No, and I think, excuse me, I think that's a great recommendation and certainly something that a lot of people can take to heart and certainly get a good piece of advice. Well, as we wrap up, if people want to find out more about your business, they want to be a customer, they want to be an employee, they want to be an investor, if you're willing to sell many of your equity, uh, they want to be your next best friend, any or all of the above, what's the best way to connect up, find out more? Yeah, I mean, so we have a website, which is www.thees.co which is spelled T-H-E-C-E -E dot C-O. Uh, mm. that's, that's for the customer. That's for the, uh, I would say the best friend. Because then if you're an investor, come find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active on LinkedIn. I've actually taken a break from the other social platforms during the last four years. 
Um, and, you know, I kind of use LinkedIn as my primary sort of social platform. Mm. So come find me there. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to connect with anybody on that space. All right. Well, I definitely encourage people to reach out, find out more, reach out to you to use your customer, use your platform, be an investor, find out more, I mean, any or all of the above. Um, now, before we wrap up, just as a reminder, we do have the bonus question we're going to discuss is or uh, Zachary's uh, top intellectual property question. So hang on to that if you want to listen to the bonus question. Otherwise, we'll wrap up the podcast. Thank you for coming on, Zachary. Been a pleasure. If you're a listener, make sure to click subscribe um, and or backing up. If you're a listener and you want to uh, be a guest on the podcast, feel free to go to inventiveguest.com. Apply to be on the podcast. Love to share your journey. Now, if you're a listener and you want to uh, make sure to click subscribe so you get notifications as all our episodes come out, as well as uh, leave us a review so new people can find out about us. And last but not least, um, feel free to uh, reach out to Miller IP Law if you have any questions with your patents and trademarks and go by going to strategymeeting.com. We're always here to help. Thank you again, Zachary. Appreciate you coming on the podcast. And now hold on just a second and then we will do the bonus question. So there we are. Now to jump on to the bonus question for all of those that continue to listen, um, we started this recently, had a few people ask their questions, but the bonus question is where we talk a little bit more about uh, my expertise, which is in patents, trademarks, and uh, as related to business. So with that, what's your number one, or what's your one top question for uh, intellectual property? So I have a question because as an entrepreneur who is involved, obviously, in all sorts of random activities and opportunities, mm. you just some people sometimes bring you business ideas or, you know, think that you can solve any problem. And so actually, uh, my amazing developer um, mm. who has been working on our platform asked me a very sort of interesting IP slash trademark question that I genuinely have no idea what the answer to is. All right. And so I'm going to, you know, give this, this bonus question over to his question, because I actually probably think there's other people that want to know. Okay. So, Go ahead. Although he is a web developer, he is also very interested in tabletop games, uh, which, mm. you know, is obviously interesting to me in the gaming space. Mm. Um, there's a very, um, I would say well-known game that has had a million different iterations of it built, designed and sold. You know, you could probably buy 10 different versions of it on Amazon right now. I'm mm. not going to mention what it is because I'm not sure he wants us to share to a public what it is, but it's a very well-known game. And he has made a slight uh, augmentation to it. Like maybe it's the best word or a slight change to it. that mm. makes it infinitely harder mm. You know, it's kind of like a Rubik's Cube type game where it's a it's a mental mental puzzle game. Hmm. And so he's made a slight alteration to it, which makes it much, much harder. And, you know, obviously it has a core sort of um, community that loves these types of games. And he seems to think the best place to take this to market, obviously, is the United States. Hmm. And so he doesn't know what what is the best next step to be able to protect what he's done and be able to you know find probably like a retailer or maybe it's a contract manufacturing partner mm. like probably he can find a contract manufacturing partner in china that's probably where it will happen but then how does he actually then sell it into the united states like 
is it a trademark? Is it a copyright? Is it a patent? Like, mm. and so that's the question is it's so it's, it is intellectual property in that it is a tabletop game. And is that something that can even be patented or is it something that is better protected under another uh, vehicle? Sure. Yeah. And there's a lot of questions in there. So I'll try and keep the, the yeah. answer a bit more concise for the, for the listeners. You know, there's really two ways that you'd protect a tabletop game. You know, one is, certainly on the trademark and that would be branding and so if you're to now the backing up the real question would be is can he if you're building on somebody else's game and they have it trademarked and or patented that may be a stopping point for him out of the shoot in the sense that unless he you know if it's somebody else's game and then you're going in building on top of it you're going to have to have permission from them or likely permission from them in order to use their brand unless he rebrands it or if they have any intellectual property, particularly on patents, if they have had patented, you're going to have to either go get a license or otherwise get permission from them. Assuming he had that permission or that it wasn't trademark, it was a different, it was, he was going to do it under a different I trademark. I actually think it's slightly different enough that it would be hard for them to say that he was stealing their. So their- I'll get maybe, but I'll give you one more caveat. So. Okay. One thing would be on the branding. So one is either he, let's say he branded it himself and he branded it a different name, different, you know, so there wasn't any likelihood of confusion. Then that would be the first place he could protect it. Same thing if you think of, you know, War, or War, Warcraft is if it was on software or you think of the magic game cards, if it was, you know, those, all those are different brands. So you're going to have to build a different brand on his own that's going to protect it. So he's not going to be able to piggyback off of the other company's brand. Now, the second question is you can't necessarily patent, most of the time you can't patent a game on the utility side, meaning there isn't a lot of functionality as far as how it works, unless you just made something that has a lot of devices and it really does have the utility and the functionality, but most of the you know, desktop, you know, or, you know, desktop games are going to be more on, it's going to be dice, or it's going to be a board game, or it's going to have a few characters, but there isn't, you know, it doesn't functional, it doesn't do anything. But a lot of times what you can do is protect it on the design side, which means it has a unique look and feel to it. And that can be, you know, you have a specific shape of a board game, or you have specific looking dice or characters or other things that make it a unique look to it then that's where it gets into where somebody else may have the ownership of it. So it depends a little bit on the tweak. When we go back to the other owner of the original game is if they have a design patent, what do they have the designs on? And is what he doing going to piggyback off of their design such that it will infringe? If it, if it is, again, you'd have to get permission. If not, and he wanted to get it protected, if it had a unique look. Now, if it's just a card deck, card games, it's going to be one where you have a new set of rules you can't really get a design on card games, but if it was the next, you know, magic game or, you know, something of that nature where it had a unique look to it, then you go more towards a design pattern. So one, just a quick summary, one would be on the trademarks. You can protect it with the brand and two, if it has a unique look to it in a different design, you could do it with a design pattern. So with that, there's a question as much as I have time for to ask on the or answer on the bonus question. But definitely, if you if if you have any more questions, feel free to go to strategymeeting.com or if any any of the listeners have any additional intellectual property questions, definitely go to strategymeeting.com. We're always here to help. And with that, thank you everybody for listening. And Zachary, wish the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thanks, sir. Mm-hmm.